This is The Next Level, a Packet Pushers community channel show where real network professionals charge into difficult IT management situations, lead from the front, and get it right. Join us as we ask the hard questions that most people are too afraid to ask and figure out how to drive the positive change you want to see. We'll take you from the CLI to CIO. I'm Damien Hoising from Packet Brigade. You can find me on Twitter at Packet Brigade. Agile is a set of principles for software development. If you ever worked with developers or DevOps professionals, you've probably encountered a lot of Agile terminology. Over a series of episodes, we'll add context to these concepts to foster better collaboration and explore how one might want to apply Agile and IT infrastructure projects. Joining us today is delivery lead James Rhodes III. James, would you please introduce yourself and tell the audience a bit about your technical and business background? Yes, my name is James Schultz III. I've been in the IT industry for many years, since the late 80s, and my background is in start off in application development, a few years at IBM, and then got into the hardware and networking side of the business in IT, and then eventually into uh, project management. Through project management, it's taken me many uh, places, meaning many different titles. I've been a uh, senior vice president of IT professional services. For a couple of companies, I've been a CIO at a different companies and then uh, chose to uh, take a, uh, not sort of a step down, but a step back and become a uh, project management at a couple of, project manager at a couple of enterprise level corporations, large corporations such as Chase Bank, uh, Wells Fargo, P&G, HP, App. And during that time frame, have noticed how Different methodologies are pretty much integrated when we start looking at project management. Waterfall comes to mind and Agile comes to mind when you start to think about methodologies. And as as uh, you go into most inter- enterprise level companies, these uh, methodologies tend to overlap. And that's where my specialty comes into place. And as we talk about delivery lead or delivery manager, my responsibility is to deliver solutions to my customer to help provide efficiencies in areas where they have deficiencies. And I manage teams of uh, infrastructure engineers currently, but I have also managed uh, application and DevOps team. Thanks, James. That's a great introduction. It sounds like you've got a lot of experience and I'm really glad to have you on the show to talk about these methodologies. So I thought that we might start off by just sort of throwing out, starting from the beginning and topping, talking about concepts and terminology to level set a little bit. So, you know, you're got a lot of experience in Agile yourself. I just thought I'd throw out there, you know, what are some adjectives we can use to describe Agile? What are some of the first ones that come to mind for you? Just sort of. Uh, well, first come to mind is nimble. You know, Agile is exactly, sometimes uh, exactly what it sounds like. Something, it's a methodology that makes a process or makes a project nimble in different cases. As you know, it doesn't sort of replace waterfall. Waterfall is, hey, here's a project. And from the top down, we start from point A and go to Z. And in the Agile sort of methodology makes you somewhat nimble. We'll look at a project from an A to Z, but how can we how can we look at a project from A to Z, but also take small bits and pieces of it and have success stories uh, within a, a minute time frame? You know, A to C, what does it look like? You know, C to G, what does it look like? You know, let's have small projects within a larger project. And uh, at the same time, we can be a lot more nimble and maybe should be to find cost savings most cases where we can then make changes quickly. A lot of what you said really makes sense and zeroes right into the heart of it. So, you know, nimble and agile and, you know, being adaptive, evolutionary. Some people associate it with quality 
which I think is interesting. And, you know, being lightweight, adaptive, adaptive, rapid. The other element of agile that, that I find interesting is that it's described as being collaborative and cross-functional and self-organizing sometimes even. So and instead of having the traditional high, very hierarchical siloed team structure, it's a little bit more collaborative. Would you agree that's true in practice, not just in theory? Definitely true. And you have to be, you know, with Agile, you're, it's constant communication. You have terms such as stand-ups, you know, where we have daily stand-ups to give, you know, you sort of don't like the term status report, but it is a somewhat of a status report. First, we have what's known as a mini inception, or we have inception. So inception is, hey, here's the beginning of the project. What does it look like over the term of the project? So we have an inception of it. And then we're able to break those projects down into what you may hear in some companies, maybe sprints, or you may hear different scrums or, or different companies sometimes use different terminology, but you mainly, the main agile communication or what's communicated to the team is like, hey, let's break this down to different sprints. So that means that a sprint is usually two weeks, depending on your project or depending on the, the culture of the companies. I've been in a place where they made it a, a week and a half to make it, you know, because it's more... It makes more sense. It's more, you know, makes the project more successful. Some is two and a half weeks because you get more out of your sprint over that length of time or over that short length of time. Definitely. You have to be collaborative. You have to be constantly communicating. It seems that it's very easy in software to see the benefit of agile versus waterfall in how fast it can deliver to market. So I've been on some waterfall projects that took 18 months to deliver Whereas with a sprint, you could be delivering a new feature every month or every couple of weeks. So I'll be interested to talk about how we can break that down into an IT infrastructure. We're talking about know, plain old-fashioned networking and servers and data center stuff. One of the concepts you mentioned earlier on, I think it was interesting to, to differentiate Waterfall from Agile. You talked about, when you mentioned Waterfall, it made me think of a Gantt chart. So, you know, Waterfall, because you have, one, you have predecessors before you can do one task, you have to complete the predecessors and there's interdependencies and well, you can plan the project back from completion. It's very modular like that. And the way you track progress is based on completing tasks and steps. Although you may not have actually delivered any as user stories, the proper term, you haven't, you haven't delivered any actual features or anything useful to the customer at that point. You're just tracking how many tasks you've got done on your checklist. What I read about in Agile and I haven't used much before is something called a burndown chart. Have you much used a burndown chart or seen a burndown chart where it has on one axis time and on the other axis features or you know user stories that have actually yeah. been delivered? Definitely, yes. And that's pretty consistent as related to the end of a sprint. Uh, after the sprint is, 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 is over, we tend to display the burndown chart to the team as a whole. So we can see our accomplishments. We can see what new features we have in place or in, or in instance of, as we deal with infrastructure, networking, we can see accomplishment and complement completing our goals that we set forth in a particular sprint. For example, we, we put in a new Wi-Fi across a, a organization. You know, it may be, you know, 200 access points for Wi-Fi. We may break that down into saying every two weeks we're going to implement 10 access points, you know, or 15 access points. And we create, as you just mentioned, user stories. So those stories are going to demonstrate what it, what it uh, entails to complete this process, you know, and implementing over, over, over a, uh, over a sprint. So our customer can see, okay, we have this 
phased approach, which they probably used to as related to waterfall, uh, and see the task as they probably used to as related to, to waterfall. But we're very active. We could say, hey, 15 APs, and then we can switch it at, after one sprint and say, hey, we may be able to increase this to 20 APs the next sprint and be able to meet our timelines ahead of goals. And that's where we get into the cost savings. That's where we get into, hey, we can increase or uh, we can show efficiencies off the deficiencies of doing an 18-month project. Yeah, that makes sense. So the, the users are getting a benefit right away. So in that example, what you made me think of is that if you had a big Wi-Fi rollout, instead of you know playing with all your controller hierarchy and getting your tunnels just right and getting all the APs checking in a firmware update before you even light up the Wi-Fi, no, you're going to stand up Wi-Fi in one zone, one area, one office, and start providing service you know, this week to a group of users instead right. of waiting on having the whole system up and running to, to do that across the board. That is correct. That's a yeah. great, great, great example. Yeah, that that's. I think that could be very valuable because in doing that, and there's also, it's not quite the just do it approach where I've seen you know, the whole shoot from the hip, like just do it, which, you know, there, there you run into structure and quality issues. But I imagine when you're doing agile, you, that, you mentioned finding all these efficiencies. So are some of the efficiencies you find where people aren't standing around waiting for somebody else to do something because you kind of decouple those interdependencies? Yeah, that is correct. You know, we, we, we take a look at how, for instance, a project I'm working on now, we, we uh, take a look at how can we overlap uh, skill sets in this in particular projects and, and, and for so one, one uh, sprint to the next, we're overlapping I skill sets. So it allows for education, education growth on the different resources we have. And that growth in the end allows for our particular resources or engineers to then become SMEs in that particular area, you know, and that those efficiencies as we go along begin to take away those deficiencies, efficiencies begin to take away those deficiencies that we see, that we've seen earlier on as we uh, put together exceptions and we looked at potential risk in the project. So we minimize risk as we went along. Yeah. So by, by having a pool of resources, which not everybody's going to be equal, but they have similar enough capabilities that they can be a flexible pool rather than having one switch guy, one route guy, one firewall guy or girl, as the case may be. Yes, that's correct. I was interested to talk about a couple of other concepts and terms that came up when I was reading about Agile. One of them is the retrospective. So after you've completed a sprint, I'm trying to remember what some of the activities are there's a there's a retrospect well, there's different kinds of retrospectives i guess but from what i understand the retrospective is is basically not a lessons learned because sometimes that has a negative connotation but it, it basically you know seems like a lessons learned of how they reflect on how things went in the sprint and how, what we're going to bring differently and do do better in the next sprint is that's, that- that's correct how can we improve on our process how can we improve on what we just accomplished can we integrate some uh, some tasks? Can we also work on can we also work on adding additional resources, or can we uh, take, have some cost savings and taking away some of the resources? So definitely, a retrospective is very helpful. So, do you have retrospect? Is it common to have retrospectives every sprint? Because that seems that would be a lot more adaptable, rapidly adaptable than say once a year updating your process library. <laughs> you know, these yes, it is pretty. It is, it is pretty common to have it every sprint. Now, in some cases, I've been on a couple of projects where we, we, after every two sprints, we do a retrospective, but because it wasn't necessary for every sprint, 
But those, sometimes we did every sprint. That's when we did like maybe two weeks or three weeks sprints. And so it depends on the project and depends on the, the methodologies within the corporation. Earlier, when we first started talking about Agile, one of the concepts you mentioned that seemed really interesting to me was this idea of time boxing versus, I guess, which would be task boxing in the traditional waterfall sense. Is, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, sure can. You know, the typical, as we, as we look at a waterfall and, and agile, what we definitely notice is what waterfall gained was some gains. And, and it's something I, I've noticed within uh, been at different corporations is upper management likes the methodology of uh, like the whole waterfall methodology. And that's because it provides them status reports over the length of the project. It provides them additional information as a, as a holistic view. And all of, in some cases, I'm say all they care about is the end is the end result, which is is true. But also, you know, with Agile, I can produce to them burn up charts, burn down charts. I can produce to them on the go status reports on hey, we accomplished this goal within Agile. We accomplished this feature as related to it. not just application development, but also within networking. You know, and infrastructure. You have different features. You know, for instance, hey, if we're going to put in new video conferencing solution. Hey, we got a new feature within our corporation and I end and we must not forget that I am you know our end customer is is the corporation as a whole is the employee you know so to have additional features added to whether it's a video conferencing solution or desktop collaboration tool you know it's something that's valuable to the company as a whole yeah I think that whole continuous delivery prospect seems very appealing, not just because you can get critical features in faster than being tied up. I can't tell you how many times I've seen project managers or business developers where they, you know, they sell a million dollars of orders if only if you do this extra feature and it delays the whole release, you know, several months in a waterfall. But in a sprint, you can add one each each month or, or each sprint. But also I'm thinking about it in the term when you talked about the customer is not just the company, but the users in the company. And maybe think of sort of the email drip marketing te- technique where, you know, it's a drip, drip, drip. Hey, I'm reminding you we're out here. We're alive. We have a new feature. You know, it hel- I imagine it would help adoption of the technology. Do, do you think that's true? That by dripping these new features at each sprint that not evangelizes necessarily, but increases the adoption of the product or the service? Well, definitely so. You know, it increases morale, <laughs> increases <laughs> as the end user, you know, an employee, you thinking, hey, wow, we really get, you know, the box or, you know, something that one of my clients just introduced Facebook enterprise within the company, you know, so imagine that, hey, we have Facebook that we use as a collaboration tool within an enterprise level corporation. You know, it has, helps the company in one sense, they don't have to go out and do training in them, you know, 80, 90% of your training and education it's taken away if you're introducing a Facebook tool or Microsoft Box or some to that extent because, you know, the end user uses it every day within their normal normal work or normal life. You know, the the new features, new, you know, tools, collaboration tools and and new phone systems, you know, that's something, you know, Wi-Fi within the corporation, you know, we can use it as a corporate tool, but we also can use it as a tool for our end users to be able to, you know, get on the internet as if they were at home. You know, a lot of companies are going away have freedom to the internet, two different, in two separate networks. But, you know, one is very secure, which, you know, security is another part of this, <laughs> as you deal with infrastructure or any, even applications, but also as we look at uh, different tools for our end user. 
That makes great sense. I'm thinking about pulling it back a little bit to the time box idea, just just because I'm, and I hope I'm not beating a, not going and repeating it too much. But I do think some of our listeners just who have no agile experience it might be helpful for them. So I want, I wonder if you can set me straight here, James. In that when I think of a task box, I think of sort of the traditional waterfall methodology where you have to do A, B, C, D, and E in that order. And if you're ready to do E, but C and D aren't done, then you have to you have to wait, and and it could go on and on and on and on. Whereas if you have a time box, it says, hey, we've got to get A, B, C, and D done this week. And if you have to do E and you can f- figure out a way to do it without waiting on C and D, then you find a way and you get it done. So by having that time box and focusing on how long you'll have to work till it's done, that accelerates the whole process. Is that a correct understanding? Yes, you know, that's that's correct. You know, you're here, you create uh, baseball cards. For instance, that's another agile term where you sit down and you spec out exactly what this effort is going to be. You know, what does it take and what is it going to take to implement one access point or one switch, you know, and what is the effort? You know, what are the potential roadblocks? What are the risks of not putting this in place? And then we create a user story. And a user story, in a sense, is I take a resource, assign this task, just taking a piece of hardware and installing it in a rack. But then I also have another resource whose responsibility may be to configure this particular switch to be used for Wi-Fi or to be used to get onto the Internet. So one is sort of it's related to one another. But also, if a piece of hardware is not racked, doesn't mean we can't utilize the hardware to get to the Internet. Yeah. If a piece of hardware is place you know, but it's not configured. Now that could be a showstopper and a risk, but do we have a separate infrastructure already in place? So definitely, you're correct. Yeah, that makes good sense. So some of the anecdotes you talked about that you could use as a deliverable or a user story, you mentioned sort of, you know, installing a device or something. And I guess I wondered if it's true, does it, you know, when I think about IT infrastructure, right, and and requirements-based design for the user. So the user, for example, their requirement is I have to browse the web. And then from there, I can derive, okay, they need a WAN connection, they need a router, they need this, they need, you know, and then I can derive further down and down and down and down and down. So to those derived requirements. So is it generally true that a user story should be, you know, a user-facing high-level requirement more so than a derived technical requirement? Like, you know, not saying, oh, I need the web, so I need, you know, X switch with so many ports. That wouldn't be a user story, right, that I put in a switch with so many ports. It would be we provided them a connection they can browse the web. Is that true? Am I thinking but, about that right? But it, it really depends on, on the project. You can create a user story, and that user story would be to you know configure a router. Now, you wouldn't go into so much detail as to say it's for to add access to the Internet. You know, uh, Because the project inception and the project as a whole, when we talk about baseball cards, identifies what the particular stories are for for a particular project. So user story would be more generic, we could probably say, <laughs> in a sense, but it relates back to your baseball card, which it gives you the more overall hierarchical view of the project as a whole. So if I'm hearing you correctly, James, what I understand is that the user stories don't have to be actual user-facing requirements or user-facing functions delivered, but they need to be high level enough where you can still be agile. They can't be too down in the weeds where you, you get tied back to the waterfall again. Correct. Sort of working on this with a, a team of resources now is that, you know, if I, if I have five, you know, I'm putting in five access points for Wi-Fi, I should be able to create 
I think today I created six user stories for you know implementing or installing an access point. Once that first access point is installed, configured, implemented, I could actually take those user stories and be able to play those stories across the other 200 that's going to be installed because we know the baseball card says specifically that or playing cards sometimes you have playing cards or baseball cards they're going to give you the details of the project this is for wi-fi access you know at a car dealership you know it's going to need 200 aps that's the baseball card the details of is at a high level is install hardware uh, uh, inventory config testing and that's it as related to a user story i'm curious because i'm still new to a lot of these concepts when you mentioned cards it made me think of another concept i read about it's called playing poker cards to use as a as an estimation process is that the same thing as what you're describing or is that different than baseball cards uh playing poker cards is a is a tool that is utilized for instance, here's a playing card, or here's a, you know, and the playing card says, okay, install an AP. What is the effort? You know, sometimes people, and this really depends on the company and our actually management, but it should be with Agile is what is the effort it takes to play this card? Okay, what is the effort, what's the effort it takes in order to perform this particular group of tasks? Some people may say one day, but in reality, your play your poker card should never go above four, if I'm not mistaken. So you would say the effort's one, you know, and that one, the effort of one means that it may take, you know, one user, you know, depending on how that criteria is within the corporation or within your methodology is defined. One effort may mean three hours, two may mean four. You may have zero, which may mean under an hour. And then four, you know, four may mean all day. So that that, that could be the that could be the case there. So with the poker cards, you're essentially using the magnitude of the face value of the card to indicate the level of effort necessary for a sort of a rapid fire estimation process. That is correct. That's correct. That makes sense. Well, I think we've talked about some pretty good concepts. We're starting to build up some terms, but also is interested to pull it back to the high level a little bit because some of the listeners who've never touched Agile before, they're thinking, oh, baseball cards and user stories, what the heck am I <laughs> getting right. into here? So I thought if you're interested, maybe we could go, there's actually an Agile manifesto and there's an Agile alliance that, that publishes and maintains some of this documentation. And from what I understand, the background is many moons ago, a large group of developers from from different schools of thought and different companies got together in Utah and they sat down and they tried to figure out what they all agreed on and they came up with basically four <laughs> four things that they agreed on which I thought was pretty remarkable you know get enough smart people in the room and it's hard to find find what they agree on so there's the, there's these four values and I'm trying to grab those really quick so one of the values and I'm just going to read out loud is individuals and interactions over process and tools what does that mean to you James well, you know, from my experience, what I've noticed, what that means to me is that if you have individuals that are willing to work their hearts in individuals in a group of people that's working together to achieve a goal of success, then that's going to be more valuable than the tools you, you, you present to them or the tools they have to work with. We will we will give everything we can to create a uh, success story 
you know, when we have a group of people, when we are open, when the collaboration is open, as we mentioned or, or earlier, we have open collaboration, we have open communications. Then, in a, in a sense where we just say, hey, here's a project, you know, go hide for 18 months, go hide for, you know, a year or two. You know, the success rate's higher when we are collaborating more, when we communicate with one another more. So that's what I got, I got out of it. Yeah, I would agree. One anecdote that kind of came to mind, just because I happened to be watching a TED Talk and the speaker used it as an anecdote the other night, is they talked about back during the early days of flight discovery, how there was a gentleman by the name of Samuel Pierpoint Langley, who apparently was very well-connected, well-funded. He had all the tools you could imagine. He had, you know, he, he bought all the brightest minds of the time to crack this flight thing. But But in the end of the day, it was two Wright brothers who cracked it. And it was because of their passion and their belief as what really was critical to their success. And so it really was the individuals and the interactions those individuals had led to their success more so than the process and tools that Samuel Pierpoint Langley had. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of evidence that that, that makes sense. Definitely. You know, and it's still, you know, the tools are important. I, I don't want the audience to, sometimes all, you know, sometimes I talk to people, they say, well, if you don't have the tools for success, you, you'll never get the right outcome. And, and, and I was like, well, you know, I'm not saying tools are not important, but I'm saying the people behind the tools, you know, in their their heart is what, you know, the heart of getting the effort done is what makes it so important. You know, you can look at a uh, many times people look at baseball teams or, or football teams and, and they say, hey, the guy is so talented. But this other guy is not as talented, cannot throw the ball as far, but he has the heart of a champion. You know, he's on a team that has a heart to win and a willingness to win. And that's what I look for in building my teams is is a group of people that have the heart to win. And with the tools they're given, they will they have the willingness to succeed no matter what. Another value in this in the in the agile four main values is working software over comprehensive documentation. I'm thinking in my mind that, you know, I'm going to take out software and say working network. <laughs> you know, you're right. You have to have a good, de- you know, you could have a really bad design and things fall apart quickly. But if you can start showing, delivering some user stories, right? If you can give the corporate users connection to their email, that's going to in some ways provide more value than sending out a beautiful network diagram of, of what you're going to build. Do you think that's a good example of that concept of working Network it it is a good example. And, 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 you know, one thing that I mentioned earlier, I think, in the in uh, in this podcast is the fact that, you know, waterfall agile, you know, it, it's important that we look at striking a balance. It's definitely good when you when you're presenting new features in in the in the client, the end users jumping to and they are wild. And also you have the morale of your team that's developed this new software, this new feature, this new infrastructure. It's, it's a great success story. But at some point, someone has to maintain <laughs> what we just created. And you have to have some strike a good balance of, hey, documenting what we put in place, document our success story. And so in a couple of my um, endeavors and projects, We've just designated a team. Hey, document the success. Take our user stories and bring up and, and out of those user stories, let's document this information we need in order to keep the success story moving forward. Another one of the values is that customer collaboration is more valuable than contract negotiation. 
you know, I think we've all had experiences where you have a very forthcoming customer who's very interested and genuinely helpful in working with you. And we've had experiences where customers are maybe not so easy to work with. But in your experience, working with lots of different clients, do you agree that customer collaboration is more important to success than, you know, scoping everything perfectly in the beginning contract? I, I, I definitely agree to that. I've uh, always wholeheartedly believed in that because the more you communicate with your customer, when problems do arrive and that communication is had all throughout the process of the project, uh, they are more more willing and more accessible to accessible of uh, of saying, okay, let's let's see where we can make some moves to make this project a success. And it and it just it's a trust. It's really a trust factor. You know, can they still trust you if 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 you're not communicating to your customer on an ongoing basis? they may feel that you're trying to hide something at the same time. So if a problem do arise, you know, they feel like they've lost their trust. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I would challenge anybody who's listening to think of a project when everything went exactly <laughs> exactly according to scope and you didn't have to make any scope changes. Correct. You know, I think yeah. that, that doesn't exist. That's like a, one of those unicorn projects. <laughs> so, you know, change is inevitable. <laughs> it's going to happen. And, and having a customer that's willing to work with you, a little give and take saying, you know, okay, we can add this, you know, add this and drop this and stay on budget. But if you want to do this, then you got to work with me a little bit. And, and having someone, customers willing to work with you like that and understand the value of what you're doing seems like it would be a lot more successful than someone who's going to hold you to the exact letter of the... And, and that really leads into the fourth value in the Agile Manifesto is that responding to change over following a plan. So I wonder if we can think of any examples of where there's a plan, plan that was doomed to fail. And I'm sure there's some good army stories if there's any military people in the audience. I'm sure anybody who went to West Point or the Naval Academy can think of lots of good <laughs> anecdotes about you know, military campaigns that were doomed to fail because they're a stubborn leader. But in our work in, in software and infrastructure, can you think of any, James? Oh, definitely. We, and that's, I think as with application development or, you know, anything related in IT, there are, there are stories, you know, to tell. We were one project I was on recently. We had to make some changes to the infrastructure. We, we got maybe 90% of the way done. And some of the changes that were made, we knew would cause an outage that was in the neighborhood of 24 to 48 hours. <laughs> which wasn't predicted initially, but it was due to some additional changes that were made from another team, application team. So what, what we did was, you know, we presented the changes to the customer. It was forthcoming. They, they probably didn't like the fact that it was a 3 a.m. call, but, you know, with fourth quarter coming with uh, potential uh, problems that we saw, and we, we made some adaptive changes. And, and, and one instance, we had to go out, and we knew as soon as a, a store or, uh, was to open, the IT store, we was going to have to make a purchase thousand dollars worth of equipment in order to come back make that change but we prepped every we prepped everything in advance so when we came back with that particular equipment put it in place and it was just an hour or two later everything was up and running and we still stayed within our outage window which was to have everything completed by uh, noon the next day that's a great success story where you're able to overcome this insurmountable block and the original plan by adapting and, and making a new plan and I think also we were talking about with, you know, outage, that definitely, I think a lot of people probably have a common experience where 
you work, you may or may not have some change control, but a lot of places, if you're in a network down emergency, you can get a change control waiver, you know, and you can do a lessons learned later. So you can be agile and and respond to the emergency. And and a lot of times I bet that happens in projects too, where you're moving along in a project and you're hitting, trying to hit a milestone and an emergency happens and it's inevitable. You're going to have to let things slack a little bit and, and change, change your plan. Yes, that's correct. And uh, we, we had it. Uh, it was a similar project. We had that, and and we just we made note that hey, we would have to make we had to do a prioritization of of the of the task, and and we knew that all right, let's let's prioritize this task. Uh, anything that's underneath three, we would save for another outage window, which wouldn't uh, affect the business as a whole, or or yeah, it wouldn't affect the business as a whole on a day to day basis. So yeah, I think if we kind of review on this high level, these four values that they're putting forth in the Agile Manifesto, individual over interactions, excuse me, individuals and interactions over process and tools, working Mm -hmm. software over comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, and responding to change over following a plan. I think those are all really easy to get behind or really get wrap our heads around. I found also there's a very useful site in the agilealliance.org. They have an Agile 101 where they list some of these concepts and they also have these 12 principles. I was wondering if you might be interested to go over some of these really quick, James. Sure. So uh, one way we could work this is, you know, I could kind of read one and maybe you could just say whatever comes into your mind, <laughs> sort of an agile uh, free association. So the first principle is their highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous deliver, delivery of valuable software insert network here. <laughs> and I think yes, that's, uh, I think we've, that, that's a lot covers, that basically summarizes a lot of what we've been talking about so far. The whole point yes, of agile. Definitely. Our highest priority, as you mentioned, is, is to satisfy the customer. And I, I think of, uh, well, my sort of philosophy that I sort of in my career had lived by is not so much to, you know, satisfy the customer, put the customer first. If you're, you know, thinking about putting yourself in the customer's seat, you know, what would you like to have seen done? So definitely in that sense, put the customer, you know, make the customers the highest priority. That way you're constantly collaborating, you're constantly communicating, you know, and that helps in that situation. The next one is is an interesting one for me. It says welcoming change welcome changing requirements even late in development. Agile process harnesses change for the customer's competitive advantage. This seems pretty unique to me. I don't hear too many people who get excited about changes late in the development. Well, you know, in our business we should understand that uh change happens <laughs> so frequently that we should really be more receptive of this. You know, and I and it's a computer IT industry, change happens so quickly. So, you know, we can have it, our mindset of, hey, let's put implement this specific software or a feature or infrastructure additive, it, but then understanding that, you know, hey, guess what? How are we going to address this issue in the in the future? You know, one company, one project I was on, we put in some some APs, and then what the understanding is, hey, you know what? We want to be able to utilize in a couple of years. There there are already APs that are, are gigabit based. So let's make sure we're adaptive. So going forward, let's make sure our projects address the fact that we want to be here utilizing some of the features of gigabit Wi-Fi. The third of the principles is deliver working network frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to a shorter time scale. Uh, and I think as you said, we, we spoke to this, well, spoke to this somewhat in, in depth. Uh, you know, I've been able to deliver, deliver network and, and features on a sprint, you know, a couple of weeks, twice a month or a monthly basis or every three weeks or so. 
it, it just makes for uh, a greater uh, work environment. It makes for uh, greater success in the project story, you know, because it's easier for, we have to understand, upper management goes back and has to report and give status reports. And when they, even though that's somewhat of a bad word in some instances of corporations now, <laughs> but, you know, when you start dealing with numbers and financing and high dollars, millions of dollars, you know, you have to report. Somebody has to report to somebody. You know, upper management CEOs have to report to the board. So uh, they, they, they like to see this, but they don't they like to see this to happen, you know. That's uh, a great these, point. Not only is it good for the user to get features, you know, on a short time scale, but it's great for management to have something to show. Some Instead of saying, oh, hey, we've coded up 40% of our software or, you know, hey, we've benched 20, 40 routers, you can say, hey, we've got this working. And And I think that makes their job a lot easier. Definitely. Definitely. Fourth principle is business people and developers must work together daily throughout the project. This seems pretty unique about the agile mindset. Development, business people, or infrastructure, and, and business people. You know, I was on a couple of meetings today. You know, the success of the business is going to depend on your software, your know, infrastructure, and in, in, in some companies, but in probably ninety percent of the corporations out there. You know, if if you're putting in a new financial software to help you save X amount of dollars, you know, you need to make sure you have the right infrastructure in place, the right software, the right features. So we have to work together in a common goal to achieve success. Yeah, I think if you're if you're implementing a technology solution to facilitate a business process, having that interaction seems so valuable. I don't know if a lot of other people have had the same experience, but I, I can remember vividly a, a project where we're implementing workflows and you talk to one person, maybe even the head of a department, and what they see the workflow as is sort of, you know, they talk, you know, sort of the elephant analogy. You're only seeing one part of the elephant. And then you go to talk to other people on their team, even in the same team, and they have other elements to the workflow. And so if you're not talking with people day to day and you spend months and months to implement the software for workflow to, just to find out you totally lost the, <laughs> totally missed the workflow that you're trying to develop, then it, you know, just wasted all that time and then they don't adopt it. And then everybody has that bad morale, which goes back to what you were saying about morale. I think nobody likes to toil for a year at a time without getting anything done. Right. The fifth one's one you touched on too, James, build projects around motivated individuals, give them an environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Yes. I, I don't like to micromanage. That's my, <laughs> that's my, Every team that I manage, I let them know, hey, I don't like to micromanage. I trust you. You wouldn't be in your position if you wasn't if you wasn't good at your job. You know, so I'm here to help you to be successful. I'm here for this project to be successful. So let's go out and get it done. You know, it's just that simple. You know, if you don't like evidently, you may not like some of them don't like management roles. Some of them want to be in the management. So I have mentors, the mentor, the ones that want to grow into management careers. I have mentor the ones that want to stay in the technology, you know, career. I've been there, you know, so I just say, Hey, go out and get your job done. And then if, uh, for the issues that come up with business on the business side and management, that's my responsibility to help us be successful. One thing I'm just thinking some potential gotchas about that. I mean, the key says build projects around motivated individuals. So, you know, I think there's very few people who like micromanaging, whether they're being micromanaged or performing the micromanaging, but communicating expectations and observe, observing how they're meeting them, I think is is critical to gauge their level of motivation and performance. So and you've got a lot of experience. You probably get a gut feeling when you're working with somebody pretty quickly about how they're going to work out. 
but in some of those newer management track folks that you mentor, what would you say to someone like that who, you know, they have a team together and they don't just naively want to assume that they're all going to be very motivated and, and get their job done? And not, you know, definitely not all of my teams have been that successful, but I have cases. I've had cases like you just mentioned. What I do, what, I, what I've learned is jump in and get your hands dirty with them, you know, help guide them along the way. Let them understand that, hey, we're in this together to, to win. So what do I need to do? Yeah, one particular project I was with, you know, I had a network engineer who's just swamped with work, you know. But, you know, I know you mentioned it earlier when we start relate to documentation, network drawings, diagrams, you know, upper management was requesting that. So, you know, I just sat down with them in a meeting and I just said, hey, you spit out what you need to, you spit out some, some information, some data. I'll write it down. I'll draw it up in my head and you just tell me where I'm wrong. That way, he didn't have to take away his whole day and work on a network document. So I just jumped in there. So I gained his trust. And that goes both ways. You know, you, you tr- somebody's trust you, then you trust them. So I definitely trust him that he was getting his job done. and He was doing the best he can, but they needed, you know, he needed that trust also. So we, you know, we were successful together, you know, through the project. That's a great story. And I really respect that philosophy of getting your hands dirty and leading from the front. And not being, you know, one of the, like some rear admiral sitting in where, somewhere <laughs> drinking yeah, his right. wine and eating some cheese while the whole ship is going down in flames. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I admire that. The, the sixth principle, chugging right along, is the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face conversation. This one seems kind of a hot button for me in the day of collaboration, global collaboration teams and remote teleworkers and telecommuters. What is your opinion about face-to-face and, you know, is Skype almost as good? It is, you know, and like, I, I think I agree with you on what is that it, in, in today's age, collaboration tools provide you an ability and an access that was unheard of. Let's say even five years ago, you know, I, I remember in, in the 90s, telecommuting with IBM, and that was the big term. Oh, it's never going to work. Telecommuting can't work, you know, but we had, you know, we just had conference calls then. You didn't have a video conference, but Right. With the tools that are out today, face-to-face is really good because you that's where you gain that camaraderie. That's where you gain that you get to know your inner workings of your team, how well they work together. But also, you know, th- through collaboration tools, and you don't have to mandate that your team is always in one location. It's a perk, you know. So if you, in a lot of cases, if you, you want to see, you know, a team, a well-oiled machine and working well together, you know, to to allow some, you know, telecommuting, working remote, and that within itself builds a level of trust between the team, and you know, you guys are in it for the long haul. I would say the only only thing is to be careful when you start to notice someone taking advantage of the of the situation, and I think that's where it may be coming from here. You know, that's interesting. So much of what you th- said gave me a lot of ideas. So, you know, going back to the original principle, the whole face to face thing, you know. I guess the old school mentality is that when you're face to face, you can read body language and you have all that nonverbal communication, that extra context and the more shared experience. So when you're co-developing or or something like that, I think it makes sense to develop culture when you're onboarding to have somebody together for so many weeks until you have that culture and you have that trust and then you can kind of, kind of go out. But what you're saying about when people could be taking advantage of telecommuting, I think that's going back to, you know, then they're kind of abusing the trust a little bit. And how do you, 
How, I mean, how quickly can you notice that if you're not micromanaging them, right? How what what is because I've heard some horror stories where a, an organization I was working with, they ended up letting somebody go because they felt that the telecommuting from another location wasn't working for them as an organization, and then that employee, you know, sued <laughs> for wrongful termination and it dragged out in a bloody court battle, and then they were very averse to to telecommuting. So what are some ways that you can nip it in the bud and find the early warning signs and rein them in a bit? Well, you know, it, it actually shows in uh, performance. If, if, a, if a person is taking advantage of a situation, it shows in his performance. It shows in the performance of the team because someone has to take up the slide. You jump up a level of management and you start to look at, you know, uh, numbers and he's like, wait a minute, this person is not in on time. That means this other person had to, you know, was required to do some of these tasks. And, and it starts, it starts to show up somewhere, you know, either a relationship wise, team unity uh, wise, or in the bottom line. So it does show up somewhere. And so, I guess using an agile process, you'll be able to detect it more quickly because you have those quicker delivery cycles. That, that is so true. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention is the fact that, you know, you have these two-week cycles. So if you notice that there's some deficiencies within your own process, you know, so how do you right. add deficiencies with your own process? You address it. You address it within uh, each individual sprint. The eighth of the 12th principles is agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. So is this sort of the marathon versus a sprint principle? Not to confuse terminology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I understand where you get it. That's that, that definitely it. So you, over the long haul, you are constantly building up, you know, to a successful end. And you know, you're going to have your ups and downs, or, or times where you don't think you can make it, but you know that in the end, as you continue to work at it, you're developing a great success story. It's a really, it's a good advantage. It's a is a great advantage to be able to you know, deliver and present the success story in the end. There, there is the word process in this principle. I know Agile is intended to be lightweight and nimble, but is documenting the process that you're following important, or can you, as you go through these sprints, can you add and fill in process to the extent that you systematize it and increase your efficiency and, and being able to scale your delivery? Well, you can you can have tools in place that, you know, once again, striking that balance. So you can have tools in place that systematically is documenting the process as we go. And then you have what is known as iteration managers. You have technical managers. Technical managers are one who may be able to take all these these stories, put them all together. And along with an iteration manager, be able to say, this is this is the value. And we've gotten out of this particular feature set. This is the value we got out. Of, we've gotten out of this project. I'm thinking about an example of deploying some access points that we talked about. So, you know, if it was the first engagement with my team deploying some access points, we may have a little bit of ramp up time. We might be looking at reference architecture, making up a checklist of how we're going to go about it and what has to be done, whether it's a user story or the traditional waterfall task boxing. But then after we've done a couple, obviously we'll have to be more knowledgeable, but then you hit like, I think you hit sort of a bottleneck in how, how much productivity you can do until you invest a little bit in scripting and automation. Can you be agile and still invest in automation of infrastructure deployments? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, that's that's actually a key is the fact that you have to constantly be looking for ways to automate and become more efficient. And there's a there's a balance within itself. You know, we look at you may look and say, hey, OK, in ways to be to become more to automate means we have to maybe go out and do some additional investment that may slow us down. But you have to have someone and identify, you know, maybe two people to say their their responsibilities. Hey, let's you know, let's stay on top of finding new ways, finding new solutions to help us to be better. And we have like architects that work side by side with a, a technical manager whose uh, responsibility is, you know, hey, these are ways we can be more efficient. These are ways we can be more efficient within our, within our processes that we have in place now. You know, it's interesting. I think in, in other terms, you just conveyed the ninth principle, which is continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances mm-hmm. agility. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think those two go hand in hand because uh, you have to, <laughs> you know, we have to continue looking toward the future and how to be more uh, agile, <laughs> how to be yeah. more efficient, you know, with utilizing tools. One one great time that I think we've all experienced in our career, that's an example of agility is you, it's four o'clock on a Friday and some, you know, a manager stops by your, your desk and says, I really need your help with this. Is there any way you can do this for me before you leave today? <laughs> you know, and the natural reaction is, oh my gosh, what are you doing to me? But if you've, if you've uh, automated it or scripted it and you can do it in 15 minutes before you go home, then, then you can say, sure, yeah, and, yeah. and be agile. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. The 10th the principle, I think, I can't think of anybody who would disagree with this. Simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. So that's an interesting wording. Simplicity makes a lot of sense from reducing your mean time to recovery to there's so many benefits of simplicity in design mm-hmm. and deployment. But the way they are worded, the art of minimizing the amount of work not done Excuse me, maximizing. Maximize. Yes. Right, right, right. Yes, it's essential. You know, you look at, I mean, you think about it. You know, we've been using networking, uh, Wi-Fi as an example. You know, if we, we've simplified, we've simpli- simplified, easy, you know, hard to say, <laughs> simplified <laughs> uh, the process of, of installing an access point, you know. So if we're, we've simplified, we notice there's some problems uh, or we've noticed that, hey, we went through 30 of these. Something is not going right here. We are able to then go back and say, wait a minute. You know what? We forgot one. Or did someone miss a piece of communication here? Or do we set the wrong radiance level for this particular Wi-Fi? We've simplified it because across the board, all the configuration is exactly the same. Yeah, that makes, yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm just still thinking on this phrasing. It's it's kind of interesting terminology. So instead of talking about minimizing the work you do, they talk about maximizing the amount of work you don't do. That's sort of right. a different, it is a little bit of a nuance, I think. So, you know, if you have some really amazing design, but you have another design that's 85% is good, and you can you can do it for 15% of the, the labor, then that's really maximum. That that makes sense. That you're simplifying and maximizing the work you don't have to do. The eleventh principle is the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. Yeah, you know, and it's a that's a really nice uh, concept. I mean, you, that you bring this up because we have our so we have our stand-ups on a daily basis, and when we talk through new features, you know, and what we do to present at the end of the sprint, but. 
you you know, like I think with any project, you hear these conversations going on where we should do this, we should do that. What about this? And you have what is known as the huddle. So, and, and this happens all the time. You know, mm-hmm. we just talk about a drive-by in the case of, hey, management comes by and says, hey, can you present this for me? Well, in the case of, you know, development, we talk about, hey, there's a huddle. You know, hey, guys, why don't you guys go huddle up over there? You're the smartest minds uh, around this particular feature, this particular solution. Go huddle up and come up with a come up with a solution that you all agree upon, and let's move. Let's move on it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that would be very satisfying to work in a high-performing team that's self-organizing. I guess I just don't have that much experience with it. Where the places I worked where they were implementing agile it was that one thing about agile is. It's not rigid in and of itself. Agile isn't a methodology in itself. There's methodologies that are agile methodologies. So you can pick and choose what, what you want. But uh, Correct. the twelfth principle is at regular intervals, the team reflects how to become more effective and tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. So not just annual reviews, right? <laughs> Performance right. reviews. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's so correct. You know what it's saying here. You know, at you know different interviews. You know, we can um, as a team, we have to figure out. You know, and that's, as a team, we want to be successful. And it's almost what I tell my team is as a unit, as you know, as a unit, the outside, our customer looks at us really as one person, you know, as one group, one group of people, you know. And so, you know, we want to be successful. So what what changes do we have to make? You know, how can we fine tune this team? You know, how can we adjust the behavior? As we mentioned earlier, what if someone's taking advantage of of the team of they're not carrying their weight you know someone needs to be able to step up and help them understand what if someone is not just to be able to carry their weight but what if someone is not contributing you know i think we did i just mentioned but she's not contributing to the team or someone doesn't have the skill set do we just throw them out you know we've had this situation now as part of that that group of people a couple group of people that sees these different tools that we can utilize to be more efficient we may have that person go out and, okay, you study this out and understand, you know, and gain this skill set. So that's how you can be more valuable to the team. I can imagine there's some degree of conflict resolution, assaging of egos and, and balancing things uh, when you have a lot of really talented people and there's a problem and it's someone doesn't immediately step up and, and take ownership for, for a particular problem. I think one thing that would be really tremendous, and I'm curious what you would think of as a manager is, let's say you had a team and, I don't know, let's say there's this new feature or this new new network feature in Cisco Nexus switches that almost nobody's worked on, right? And it's one of the user stories is delivering this feature. And you get assigned an engineer to do it, and he looks at it, and he just doesn't get it, and he talks to another team member, and that team member explains it to him, and he doesn't get it. And he talks to a third team member, and that team member explains it to him, and he doesn't get it. At that point, I think it would behoove that person to speak up and say, you know what, I'm sure I'm going to get this eventually, but it seems like some other people are picking this up fast, so can I take trade you for some of the tasks that you're working on and you take on this task for the benefit of the team? And while I may, on the surface, look poorly to some degree for not being the smartest guy in the room on that particular topic, be a better team member overall. And you know, in the band, I think the most valuable people are those who can learn and adapt more, not necessarily the smartest person in the room. Right. And I, I so hard, uh, definitely agree with that. You know, on the application, on the dev side, you know, you hear Perry, you know, you're going to pair up, we're going to partner up mm-hmm. and we're going to go through this code, this code, 
and and even on the networking side, you know what I especially what I've brought to the last this current organization I'm working with is the fact that, you know, let's do the same things related to infrastructure to networking. Let's pair up, and and uh, with the base skill set, this person should be able to pick up on this next level. But we may have to guide them. We may have to mentor them to that level because in the end, what it's going to do, you know, the overall goal is it's going to make us all successful. You know, uh, a person X, Y, Z, maybe an architect, you know, you don't have to drop down and do as much engineering work. You can focus on growing your skills as an architect and being more visible within the corporation and giving out, you know, good ideas for where the next growth path should be within the company. So it's definitely a success within the, within the end. If, uh, if, we, if you know how to deal with it, you know how to manage, like you said, <laughs> different egos different backgrounds, different cultures and everything. It's definitely still a success. One thing, one last thing I was interested to ask you about, you described coding, you know, programming in pairs. And and one of the advantages of paired programming from what I understand is quality. In in the networking engineering example you gave, yeah, it's really important to mentor people for the flexibility, agility of your team and, and that. But also, do you find any best practices or any really good success stories on quality? Because I, one thing I'm very passionate about is QA checks for consistency. And, you know, everybody that, are, you know, sometimes you're under the deadline and you may have you may have to leave off some user stories, right? But then to come back and check and make sure they get added to the backlog and that they don't get lost. So how, how do you handle that sometimes on the infrastructure side? It's the same thing. Uh, uh, and uh, we, I... I encourage uh, mentoring. I encourage somewhat of the pairing. It's somewhat difficult to pair because of the fact that, you know, I have an engineer who's going out and doing configuration on a particular network device. But what I do require is, and then even within one of the tools that we utilize is JIRA, you know, so even within the tool of JIRA, you know, sign-off requirement comes from a peer or comes from manager or something to that extent. So, you know, for my network engineers, I require their sign off to come through the network architect. If my network architect makes a configuration change, which is still on the level of a network engineer, that his peer had to sign off on it or a technical manager has to sign off on it. That that gives you that level of quality and quality assurance that it ever had. Thanks a lot, James. I think that that would be a wonderful method. That makes good sense to me. And I, I especially like that you have it at the peer level. So it's not like somebody is judging you from on above, but that your your colleague is helping you and, and you're helping each other. Well, we've, we've come a little bit over, so I'm going to go ahead and read out the show close. Is that all right? Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? No, that's it. I appreciate the uh, time I get to spend. It's always a pleasure of mine to speak to an audience, and I thank you for inviting me. Thanks, James. Thanks for joining us on The Next Level. I'm Damien Hoising. You can contact me at Damien at Packet Brigade. I blog on Packet Pushers. James, how can folks get in touch with you? Would you like to share a social media reference or a book or uh, your business, any kind of references you'd like to share? Yes, I uh, work for a company called Pillar Technology out of Columbus, Ohio. Also, can be reached at jroads, triple I is my Twitter handle, at sign J-R-H-O-D-E-S. I, I, I for the third. And um, also, you know, I can be reached at jamesroads the third at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can leave comments on the blog post that accompanies this podcast on packetpushers.net or drop us a line at nextlevel at packetbrigade.com. 
Thanks once again, James, for taking your time today out of your busy schedule to talk to us. We really appreciate your perspective. All right. Thank you. Have a great night.